Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 2, Tangential Trinity. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll tackle the criticisms and controversies of an ambitious and polarizing film to gain insight into the future of this shared universe. In this episode, we talk about the open hibernation pod, revisit the world engine, discuss Superman's position on Kryptonian technology, and how that might lead to a beef with the bat. We tangentially touch on the Trinity in today's talk. Trust me and stay tuned. This is a podcast for fans who want to dive deep into the Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that leaves a lot of room for interpretation and investigation. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved Man of Steel and loved to chew their food. We'll start with diegetic analysis for what happened in the film, then analyze the creative decisions that took place outside the film. Diegetic means within the logic of the story. I'm compiling a chronological list of such diegetic questions and alleged plot holes so we can start to move through them. But for now, we're going to do general topic episodes like this one. Last episode, we talked about the seven remnants of Kryptonian technology left on Earth at the end of the movie. Well, I didn't mention the open hibernation pod and the world engine scrap. It's just as well, because I get to talk about Wonder Woman and Batman in this episode. Let's start with the world engine. I can't believe I forgot it in the last episode, but it's okay. I only have a quick four talking points about the world engine, which didn't get sucked into a singularity like the Black Zero. Well, first, and the most interesting thing, I think, is the fact that it's outside of the United States jurisdiction and possibly in Aquaman's backyard. That means any scrap, anything recovered from it is up for grabs. Uh, it's a it's a global resource or global piece of Kryptonian technology that isn't going to be solely controlled by the United States. Second, it's massive, so it's possibly going to leave a little more scrap than, say, Lois's escape pod. So that's more material to study. And it's also the largest reservoir of liquid geo. Uh, if you don't know what liquid geo is, it's the three-dimensional display technology that allows for a physical interface. It's capable of forming physical tools like the command key or appendages like the World Engine did to fight Superman. Liquid Geo is the name that the special effects company gave it in creating this visual display technology. And there's a featurette online and on the disc if you want to watch it and learn a little bit more about it. And lastly, like the FTL example from the previous episode, humanity now knows definitively that terraforming isn't just a theory, but possible. Now, there are reasons to pursue technology like this beyond just space exploration, such as addressing or combating climate change. Now, speaking about climate change, 18,000 years ago was when the Earth's climate began to warm and human civilization began to take off. Well, coincidentally, that's roughly when a Kryptonian scout ship arrived. And that leads us to our second piece of technology, the open hibernation pod. So the open hibernation pod was something that they highlighted in the film. Clark goes into the scout ship. He sees a pod, swipes the glass, and then sees a desiccated body inside. And then briefly, they show 
an open hibernation pod. But that's the extent of what we see in the film. It's ambiguous. Presumably, they then travel through the stars with an empty pod that was open. But at the same time, the scout ship seems largely unused. The Genesis chamber is intact. It wasn't churning out Kryptonian babies. And the whole ship was buried 300 meters under the ice, uh, roughly 100 stories. And just to give you sort of an idea, there's less than 20 buildings that are over 100 stories tall in the world. So it was it's buried quite deeply under there. However, if you're a hardcore fan, you're probably aware of the Man of Steel prequel comic entitled originally Man of Steel prequel with a story by Goyer, Snyder, and comic book writer Jeff Johns. The actual script was written by Sterling Gates and that gives us a little wiggle room to talk about canonicity. To be honest, I doubt the canonicity of this particular story. I don't think any future writers or filmmakers are going to have their hands tied by this. They're not going to lose any sleep if they come up with something that contradicts or deems this particular comic non-canonical. And I don't have a problem with that. But I have to admit my prejudice against the comic deals with a specific theory of mine. But as Alton Brown says, that's another show. If you read the comic, you know that two Kryptonians made it into Earth's solar system. And at least one of them made it to the surface. It's ambiguous. It's a figure cast in shadow. But later in the comic, you see the crest of the House of El. And that strongly implies that it is Kara who lives on to spread Krypton's story, its values, and perhaps its genetics. The comic possibly creates more questions than it answers. As far as we can tell, she abandoned the self-repairing ship. To be fair, though, we don't know how long it takes for such ships to regenerate and self-repair. It may have taken longer than her full natural lifespan. So that might have explained the disuse or the abandonment of the ship. Now, one of the most intriguing possibilities that has many fans divided is the suggestion that Wonder Woman might be a descendant from Kryptonian heritage. And that leads us to talking about whether Wonder Woman is or should be a Kryptonian. So is Wonder Woman a Kryptonian or should she be? That's a topic for an entire episode. But I just thought I'd run down some of the pros and cons really quickly. In the pro column, it's elegant and orderly in the sense that you don't have to introduce magic into the universe. It's hard to tell grounded stories once the door to the irrational has been opened. You'd have to explain and deal with a hidden world of magic, one that's always been there and is suddenly the doors are blown open wide onto the real world or the mundane world. And to have a story that's more sort of condensed that way can be very appealing to a writer. Those constraints make things much simpler to uh, work with. But in the con column, it's not traditional. If you're going to have Wonder Woman, there's certain elements you expect, and one of them is magic. It's Wonder Woman's large contribution to the archetypes that the Trinity represents. Superman represents science fiction. Batman represents contemporary storytelling. And she represents the fantasy archetype. If we condense everything into just being Kryptonian in origin, it sort of limits your world. You don't have the opportunity or the ability to expand out into those areas as readily. And if you do, you've cut off the legs of Wonder Woman's tradition only to introduce magic later with another character. It may be 
showing her character maybe short shrift. So I tend towards Khan, but I have an open mind. I'm not married to the position. I, I can see validity in either approach. I'm open to being convinced otherwise and open to seeing what the filmmakers do with it. Speaking of multiple approaches, we come to Superman's attitude towards Kryptonian tech in the future films. So Superman can roughly have two different approaches to Kryptonian technology left on Earth. And I've coined them the Steward of Krypton or Prometheus, Titan of Tomorrow. <laughs> Those are not canonical. You can ignore them. The Steward of Krypton approach is where Superman takes an affirmative stance he says, this is my heritage. It's my birthright. As the last son of Krypton, this technology is mine to take care of. I want to avoid a global tug of war over technology, and so I'm going to be a steward over it. It could also be a more neutral stance. It could be him biding his time in trying to figure out how this whole Superman thing works. He may say, I don't really know what my position is, but in the meantime, I'm going to hold on to this technology until we figure it out. And to do that, he's got to put the technology out of humanity's reach. Now, the Fortress of Solitude was first put in the Arctic in 1958. And back then, the Arctic was largely out of humanity's reach. Today, not so much. So where can Superman put all this technology so that it's out of humanity's reach? And I think the answer to that is to put it in orbit or on the moon. So you'd have an orbital or moon Fortress of Solitude. That brings us to a quick aside. Can Superman breathe in space? And sure he can. He does it three times in the film. First, when he's discovering his flight. Second, when he's escaping the Black Zero. And lastly, when he's fighting Zod. This is consistent with his ability to not need a mask in the oil rig fire and to not drown when he was dreaming underwater. This is also consistent with the Kryptonian atmosphere weakness, but that's another show. Now, there are two things I really like about this particular approach. The first is, it's so easy to tell elegantly. All you have to do is have Superman fly into space, get into the scout ship remnant, and hang up his cape. And you can leave it to the audience to put together everything that we just talked about. The second thing I like about it is that with self-repairing and healing technology, Superman is going to have access to a bunch of Kryptonian technology that can act as a lubricant to make traditional superheroing work. He may have Kelex as an AI assistant. He may have holographic projectors to help him appear simultaneously with Clark Kent and preserve his secret identity. He may have access to Kryptonian supercomputers in order to do super hacking and, say, scrub his image from social media or whatever. Of course, there are some problems with this approach. It, it is kind of more on the fantastic spectrum of science fiction. It does make Superman a little detached from humanity in heading to that fortress of uh, solitude. And that's why we can start to talk about some of the character reasons against this approach. Now, granted, there's cause for a big shift in Superman's character in After Man of Steel. And that's definitely going to be a future episode. But from the character we saw, Superman is human. He chose humanity and he was raised human. Although finding about his heritage was something really profound to him and important to him, it's not his core identity. And his core identity is of somebody who was raised by Martha, who said that objects are just things. He's a guy that lived as a vagabond for 16 years and was always on the move, living out of a duffel bag. So it's not like 
He had a great attachment to things. He readily gave up his ship. He gave up his command key. If it were me and I had that object dangling around my neck for 16 years, irrespective of the actual informational value on that thing, just the sentimental value would make it hard for me personally to part with it. He wasn't worried about downing the scout ship or the Black Zero. So the other approach is Superman takes a hands-off approach on the technology. And this is the Prometheus Titan of Tomorrow approach. He says the rules aren't clear and he's going to let the chips fall where they may. These things are largely in U.S. government jurisdiction and so he leaves it up to the government. And that can have sort of profound effects as we spin forward and see how that attitude could also inform and affect the plot. In the prequel comic that we talked about above, we know that the Kryptonians know about other intelligent life in the universe. The Thanagarians are specifically named. But even without the comic, I think this is consistent with the film. Jorel says it's a seemingly intelligent population. He isn't blown away by finding the first intelligent life in the universe besides themselves. By the way, that's another show. So the Kryptonians know, and by extension humanity now knows, that there are other aliens out there. So far, humanity's only experience with extraterrestrial life has been the attempt at total annihilation of the human race. So they have cause to give pause to the idea of future alien incursion, as does Superman. Yes, he saved the Earth, but he did it by the skin of his teeth, with fortune conspiring to help him, and at great personal cost. So for humanity's sake, it's not a burden that Superman necessarily wants to bear alone, or that humanity wants him to bear alone. It's not that he wouldn't willingly serve or step up, But Earth's chances get that much better if Superman had men like Colonel Hardy fighting alongside him, equipped with Kryptonian technology. So I can see Superman willingly turning over and encouraging technological advancement so that Earth doesn't have to go right up to the brink of extinction with their fate resting solely in Superman's hands. But what do those preparations mean? Well, simply, it it has to be weapons. You know, as an aside, we didn't talk about this for the scout ship, but it had a genesis chamber. And presumably, that means it had the capacity to fabricate the needs of those people that would be coming out of the genesis chamber for those newly born colonists. So if that technology can be repaired or replicated, you suddenly have the ability to quickly ramp up humans R&D towards proliferating Kryptonian technology. Superman would do this because he optimistically trusts humanity to stand beside him. But who do we know who has an issue with weapons. Well, there's the Bat. Batman was a victim of weapons technology. And in opposition to Superman, he has a cynical view of humanity. Batman doesn't see it as preparation against cataclysm, but he imagines Kryptonian weapons in the hands of madmen like Joker or flooding the streets of Gotham with Penguin as a weapons dealer. So this allows Batman and Superman to come into conflict where both sides are reasonable and based on their personal experiences. Even better, it means that they can, at the end of the film, or in resolution to this conflict, they can come to a compromise where the Justice League is the answer. With the Justice League, Superman doesn't have to stand alone in the defense of Earth. He doesn't have to worry about being the one and only contingency against alien incursion. Now he has these other members of the Justice League to help him defend Earth. 
And with the Justice League, Batman can see that there is still great power in play, but it's within a small group of individuals committed to justice and which Batman can monitor and influence. This makes for far better conflict than just beef over collateral damage. There are ways to make that work too, but that's another show. Let's talk a little bit about what Batman takes away from the Black Zero event. I think the prevailing theory is that Batman comes away from it believing that Superman is a threat or somehow responsible. I have to disagree. I think Batman comes away thinking Kryptonian technology is an incredible threat and that Superman is well-intentioned but inexperienced. Look at it this way. No one is more acutely aware of their own limitations than Batman. A couch potato doesn't know what their 100-meter dash time is. But Batman does. Batman knows that if he's just a little bit stronger, just a little bit faster, he can save another life. He has to assess and calculate the limitations of his opponents so that he can overcome them. So he's going to recognize a rookie making their debut and not hold Superman accountable for the experience that he couldn't possibly have. Batman trained Robin. Batman didn't just send Robin into the field expecting him to be the bat the first time out. Likewise, Batman would not expect Superman to act like a veteran his first time. Batman is a hero who dedicated his life to the defense of his city, Gotham. In BVS, it's a task that took such a toll on Batman that he is, in the words of the WB CEO, Kevin Sujihara, tired and weary. Imagine all his work rendered meaningless if Zod had won. In Batman's mind, Superman saved Gotham. Some may argue that Superman jeopardized Gotham by being on Earth, but there's a lot of rebuttals to that, and that's another show. Additionally, you have to remember where Man of Steel leaves us. Clark has decided to take a job at the Daily Planet to keep his ear to the ground, specifically because he intends to begin to publicly help people as Superman. So Superman is going to have a track record of earnest do-gooding by the time Batman can bring a grievance to him. It wouldn't make sense for Batman to perceive Superman as an enemy based on the Black Zero event alone. If he views Superman as either naive or abdicating his duty to police Kryptonian technology, that could precipitate a conflict between the two. Of course, everything I've laid out assumes that Batman is an intelligent and rational being, the world's greatest detective, and the noble Dark Knight is my preference in portraying one half of the world's finest. But there's another thing that Batman has been, and that's crazy. Batman is, in many portrayals, the walking wounded. He took a horrific trauma and used it to forge himself into someone trying to excise their demons by beating criminals to a bloody pulp in the night. So there's ways that the film could prey on that woundedness and trigger Batman's madness and to bring the world's finest into conflict under less sensible circumstances. Between the two, I obviously prefer if it's the case of reasonable minds differing, where both perspectives are sane and sympathetic to the audience, their differences bringing to light the duality of their eventual partnership. I think it would be a disservice to Batman and Superman if Batman were acting out of insanity even if it's an interesting performance that could rise out of that. Rather, I prefer if they both seek the common goal of justice and protecting the innocent, but have differing but justifiable views on how to go about it. Their debate doesn't have to be just about the weapons technology as I've proposed here. There are plenty of things 
on which people are reasonably divided and which could be reflected with Superman and Batman. Government, teamwork, preparedness, whether humanity is inherently good or evil. Any of these would be a better fulcrum for the future story than the fact-specific issue of collateral damage, something that's less salient, relevant, or relatable to the general audience than, say, the merits of the government or trusting your neighbor. Their ability to act as foils and characterize each other is one of the most compelling partnerships in fiction and why we'll be revisiting the Batman in future episodes of this Man of Steel podcast. I think it's fundamental to a degree that Batman represents cynicism, the dark, while Superman exudes optimism, the light. Now, given the tone of Man of Steel, many detractors can't picture an optimistic Superman coming from the film. They expect Superman to be dour, joyless, and guilty from the collateral damage caused by the Black Zero event. That Superman should feel guilty about the BZE is a fundamental misinterpretation of the film. Superman was guilty about Jonathan because he held back and always doubted what he did. That's why after telling Lois the story, he asks her, What do you think? The question is still live in his mind, and it's what stopped him from ever moving past it and settling down. By contrast, Superman gave his all in the BZE. He put his freedom in humanity's hands. He laid his life down on the line against the world engine, and he held back nothing, not even his innocence, and shed blood to do the right thing, like many servicemen before him. Now those actions would leave him marked, but also secure in the knowledge that he did the right thing. It would be reinforced every day that he gets to see his mom, his new girlfriend, his co-workers, a home where he sets down roots and a calling that he's waited his whole life to feel and fulfill, a grateful planet and a government that calls him ally. All of these things would cause him to move past it and be happy. That's where Man of Steel leaves us, and that's what those last three scenes in the film show. Belief that Superman should feel guilty, morose, or regretful of the BZE is meta-commentary coming from the critics outside of the story of the film and injecting itself into the film world, bowing to that misinterpretation. Compassion and respect for the loss, of course, but not a feeling of personal guilt. Superman is very analogous to a fireman or emergency services, and they can't do their jobs if they're consumed by the ones they couldn't save. Instead, they take the perspective of individuals who are doing good and doing their best. And that's what Superman did in the BZE, and that's why he'll be able to move past it. So this Superman that has a new calling, has a new city, has a girlfriend, is able to publicly exercise his gifts to the utmost of his ability, that's the Superman that we're going to get in Batman vs. Superman. That's the Superman that is going to be facing off against the tired and weary veteran, Batman. So it is my hope that we get that contrast between light and dark, and that it plausibly comes out of Man of Steel. It isn't something that they're just tacking onto the film artificially. It does naturally arise out of the events and the occurrences of Man of Steel. In this episode, we covered what impact the World Engine scrap might have. We talked about the open pod and its possible ties to Wonder Woman. We discussed two ways that Superman might tackle Kryptonian technology and how giving humanity access 
might cause him to come into conflict with Batman. We talked about what Batman's logical attitude towards Superman should be, but then we also talked about how Batman could have an illogical attitude towards Superman. We discussed how Man of Steel lays the groundwork for an optimistic Superman, and finally my preferences on the approach to a Superman-Batman conflict and partnership. So that's going to be my time. I really appreciate each and every listener and the great feedback I've been getting. If you have any questions that you want answered, or insights that you want to share, or commentary that has to be said, go to manofsteelanswers.com and post in our forums, or email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your Man of Steel apologist, signing off. See you next time.